Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, as every episode, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest. For those of you in the nuclear community, you know this man. He's been around a long time. He's he's certainly one of the graybeards of our profession. Of course, that is Mike Schultz, and Mike is the Acting Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff for strategic deterrence and nuclear integration. He is running Air Force A-10 these days until uh, General Jabara, who has been nominated for the position, is uh, confirmed by the Senate and takes the job. But until then, Mr. Schultz is running the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on NucleCast. Well, Adam, it's great being here and it's great seeing you again. Yeah, it's good to see you. So it's a busy time for you. and, And as many of our listeners know, you know, on the on Nuclecast, we talk primarily in NSA DOD related issues, but we also talk nuclear power. We we've talked how fourth generation reactors can be used on in you know to deploy locations. So we have we talk Russia, we talk China, but we've never really talked about Air Force A ten, what it does, and how it sort of fits into the nuclear enterprise. And then of course the programs that that you and the A-10 manage in terms of the nuclear modernization. So this is a perfect opportunity to hear all about A-10 and its mission and then how y'all are managing and sort of expecting these modernization programs to turn out. So it's a, it's a great opportunity to have that conversation. So let me ask you, let me just kick off the, the discussion and ask you, can you fill in for the listeners? Cause Probably many will know, but some may not. What exactly is Air Force A-10, and then how does it fit into the the nuclear enterprise? Yeah, Adam, great question. Uh, and and for people that don't have a steep history uh, in, in the Air Force nuclear enterprise, they, they don't understand the background that that led to the development of, of an A-10. Um, so I'll, I'm going to go back uh, to the 2007 timeframe. Uh, uh, when it all kind of started, right? So, uh, as, as you and I know, when we were, you know, I was on active duty and you were, you were down uh, in Alabama, you know, doing great things, uh, uh, research on strategic deterrence, uh, the focus really, or the threat there was not really, you know, Russia at the time. It was uh, violent extremists. It was the, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. Uh, and that's, that's a lot where the Air Force's focus was, right? And, uh, and so there were some d- decisions made uh, to consolidate weapons. There was a decision to retire the advanced cruise missile uh, and just, you know, have the air launch cruise missile. And to make that happen, uh, the Air Force had to move assets from um, from Barksdale Air Force Base up to Minot and from Minot down to uh, Barksdale Air Force Base. And in one of those movements, we, we moved uh, advanced cruise missiles with warheads in them. Uh, and, and nobody knew it 
till it got down to Barksdale and the technicians at the end uh, went to do the pre-flight to download them and notice that the warheads were in there. And that generated a lot of uh, investigations and reviews. And, and one of the outcomes of that review is that uh, the focus on the air staff and the, the single accountable officer that came in every day that was focused on nuclear head and over time migrated from a three star to a two star to an 06. Uh, so when, uh, at the time, Secretary Wynn, or not Secretary, Secretary Donnelly <clears throat> and, and Chief of Staff uh, General Schwartz uh, had, a, had a big uh, nuclear conference with, with all the Air Force senior leaders and were presented options on how, how to organize the Air Force again around the nuclear mission. That included uh, the stand-up of the Global Strike Command, a separate command focused on the nuclear mission. And there was a decision to stand up a, a directorate on the air staff that was solely focused on uh, the nuclear portfolio. And, and that organization was A-10. So we were stood up in 2008. And so we've been around since that time, time period. Uh, as our name talks about, uh, we're strategic deterrence and nuclear integration. Uh, so we don't own a lot of widgets, but we, we do a lot of integration and synchronization, not only internal to the Air Force, uh, but within our, our mission partners across uh, DOD and uh, the Department of Energy. Uh, we're, we're set up around five major lines of effort. We have a, a human capital division that kind of manages the 13N missile career field. And we manage uh, cross-functionally a lot of the core nuclear AFSCs to identify what their core competencies are, uh, what are required, and, and how we can help them with their professional development, working with their, their career functionals. We have a capabilities division that kind of works the stockpile with uh, NNSA uh, and DOE and uh, uh, SAP AQ. And, and we do a lot of uh, uh, health assessment of the force in that particular division. I have a division that's focused on uh, nuclear command and control. And it is a, in that role, we're helping develop a roadmap for the future on what NC3 should look like and how we can make sure that we're, uh, we're, we're funding our programs that our programs are record today. I have a policy division that's uh, currently focused on the nuclear posture review implementation. Uh, and we also su support the, uh, the secretary uh, as, as a part of uh, the executive agent for the Foreign Clearance Guide. And then uh, in the uh, strategic deterrent aspect outside of nuclear, I have a CWMD division that's focused on CWMD policy within the Air Force and working with uh, OSD on strategy development and making sure that we're IDing the right uh, Requirements for our airmen, as far as you know, uh, chem protection from uh, from ground personnel to to air crew. So that's kind of how A10 is uh, is is organized. Now, day to day, uh, you know, we do a lot of engagement with SAFAQ and and A8, the programmers, to make sure that uh, we're we're getting the funding for the programs that 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 need the funding and that the programs are executing appropriately. And then we. Uh, do a lot of direct outreach with uh, OSD, excuse me, particularly uh, OSD Nuke Matters in the surety security standpoint, and then DOE with uh, the nuclear stockpile. And then obviously we have a very close relationship with General Boussier and, and Global Strike Command, uh, you know, trying to be their representative here on the air staff, making sure that we're taking care of uh, their requirements and advocating for their, their needs as they're executing the mission on the front lines. Over. 
So is for many folks and they try to sort of place where you fit in terms of how you work with, like you mentioned, General Boussier and Global Strike Command and then STRATCOM and then the Joint Staff. And so you have these commands that have the operational mission, the OTNE, then the responsible for executing the mission and STRATCOM and the Joint Staff. What is that relationship like and how do you manage what can probably sometimes be that this sort of push and pull of different organizations that, that want to have influence over areas and just how those authorities and, and, you know, requirements are dispersed. How, how does that all get managed? How do those relationships work? Great question. And, and really it's about uh, building your network, right. And relationship building. <laughs> uh, and, and for the most part, you know, you know, you know, you talked about me being a graybeard. You know, we've had relationships over time. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned General Javera. You know, I've, I've known Andy for probably you know 13 years. I've known Tom Boussier for about the same same time period. Um, and, and so, really, it's it's uh, you know having those relationships and and uh, constant communication and transparency. And and so I have regular. Uh, phone calls and video teleconferences with uh, Johnny LaMontagne, Joe LaMontagne, the USAPI DCOM, making sure that from a USAPI perspective, uh, you know, I'm helping him work through issues that he's seen over there supporting the DCA mission. And then, uh, you know, certainly with General Weatherington and General Boussier at, uh, at Global Strike Command, having, you know, you know, biweekly conversations, comparing notes. Uh, and, and occasionally there are going to be times, you know, just like in any bureaucratic <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the organization above you and the organization below you doesn't know what they're doing. Only, you know, what you're doing. Uh, but, you know, you know, sometimes there are tensions between, you know, the air staff and, and the match comms. And, and, and my job is to help work through those and, and find some common ground to make sure that we're supporting uh, uh, General Boussier and his airmen. You know, at the end of the day, and, you know, you know, any chief of staff of the Air Force that, you know, talks to their DCS is our number one job. Uh, is is not to think that the match comms work for us. It's that we work for the match comms. We work for the airmen out in the field. So the people in A-10 come in every day, and our job is to say, how can we make things better for the airmen that are out there executing the mission out in the missile fields, at the bomb wings, uh, at our DCA locations in Europe and across the globe? Now, the Air Force has two of the three legs of the triad, and we're modernizing you know, we, we've got Sentinel underway, the B-21, LRSO, there's there's warhead work going on. And so wh- where do you fit in terms of responsibility for that modernization issue? And then how do you work with Global Strike and STRATCOM and all, on these specific modernization issues? So, so the, probably the biggest thing is just uh, synchronizing the various efforts, right? You know, as I, as I talked about, you know, outside of the, the warhead stockpile direct work with uh, NSA, we, we don't necessarily, we, we, don't, we don't control the acquisition process. We don't tro- control the planning and programming uh, process. Uh, but what we do do is, we, you know, we're involved in those processes, right? And so by being involved in those processes, when we, when we see disconnects, uh, you know, like if, if, if there's going to be a, a programming decision that's going to affect a, uh, 
a, an acquisition program is being able to connect the dots, bring the people together and go, hey, is this really what we want to do, right? We never want to have a decision made that has an unintended consequence. Um, so I don't know if it was, uh, it, I don't know, if, well, I can't remember the company, you know, it was, hey, we don't make things, we make things better. Uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, our, our goal here in A10, right? You know, we don't necessarily own the processes, but we want to do is make sure the processes execute as effectively as possible. And, and you know, being that orchestrator uh, can be very effective at times. Now, as, as we think about the Russians, you know, Russian threats of nuclear weapons use, and then China's massively expanding nuclear arsenal, and then th- the North Koreans are, you know, the, they're going gangbusters in terms of expansion and both delivery platforms, warheads. And, you know, the Iranians are a, a power that could go nuclear at any time. What what role do you play and does A-10 play in terms of helping think through what these adversaries are doing, how we should handle them, and and then, you know, coordinating with all of the various you know, inputs, the labs, the global strike and everybody else who's trying to figure this out and come up with sort of a, a, a rational approach to each of these adversaries. What role do you play? You know, so at the, at the most common element of, of our role as a secretary of the Air Force uh, and, and um, as a DCS, you know, our, our job is to organize, train and equip, right? Uh, so So the way it works is somebody goes, okay, here's, here's a requirement. We need this capability. Air Force is responsible for delivering that capability. Go and, and, and do the acquisition program. On the front of that is all the policy decisions on what you need, right? And, and that happens as a part of the nuclear posture review. Uh, and, and that's led by OSD and specifically, you know, OSD policy. So the most recent nuclear posture review in, in 2022, uh, you know, we had a seat at the table, you know, as a service, uh, just like the Navy that, you know, brings a an element of the triad. We got to participate in those conversations. Uh, we got to help, uh, you know, maybe shape some of the policy discussions and outcomes. But at the end of the day, you know, those those outcomes are determined by the administration uh, and, and by OSD. So so from an A-10 perspective, our role was we got to participate. We got to bring the Air Force positions into these forums. We got to have the Air Force voice. Uh, and we, we got to, sh- to shape the policy. At the end of the day, you know, OSD can either take that comment or not take that comment and, you know, produce a document. But what, what, that, what that does is it produces, it says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And, and then the Air Force gets to move out, right? You know, so if we go back to the 2010 NPR, uh, it confirmed the need for modernization in our, in our nuclear triad, right? So we needed to recap Sentinel. We needed to get after B-21. We needed to get after Columbia. And, and so since that NPR affirmed the need to do that, you know, the, the, the Air Force and the Navy have been moving out. Uh, but what that highlights is that things do not happen fast, right? You know, so in 2010, <laughs> we made a decision we were going to recap. Here we are in 2023, and we're probably still about, you know, uh, let's say five years, maybe uh, four to five years from delivering the first Sentinel. Uh, and, and so what that should tell people is that, you know, our ability as a nation to rapidly produce nuclear capability is, is not that fast, right? You know, it, it's taken 17 years. And as we look to the future in a, 
uncertain strategic environment, we probably ought to plan a little bit better if not waiting till the very end to make decisions on uh, modernizing our force where they're all coming due at the same time. So you bring up a great point that sort of spurs a question in my mind. And, and I remember when I was down at the Air Force Research Institute and we were asked by the chief to do a study on acquisition reform. And so as we looked at it, we found that in the 10 years prior to us looking at this issue, there had been about 160 acquisition reform studies. And so we already knew everything that was wrong with acquisition, and we already knew how to fix it all, but we never seemed to actually get it right. And so sitting where you are, and as you just mentioned, we're, we're almost two decades into this, as you look and sort of lessons learned and and just experience, because you you know the whole time we've known each other, which has been probably 15 years now, you've been watching this process and, and living with it. Are there any sort of lessons learned or things that you, if, if I were to give you my magic lamp to make three wishes that you would say you wish you could change about the process to speed it along, to simplify it, to make it more cost effective? Do you, would you have any of those, those wishes or sort of lessons well, uh, so what I'll tell you is that in my entire life, I've been an operator, right? And I, I started out as a pre-engineer, you know, so I, I did like, you know, two years of engineering and realized that wasn't for me. So I'm really not in a in a position to comment of, of how we can improve, right? I've, I've asked the same questions you've asked, right? You know, why, why does it take this long? I, I think there are, there are some examples of how things have can go fast. I mean, I think if you look at the B-21 example, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty good example of well-defined requirements, program on track, uh, not really experiencing, you know, any delays, uh, you know, and that kind of came out of our RCO office. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, uh, you know, you talked about there's been tons and tons of studies. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think part of it could be the shrinking industrial base that 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 limits the, uh, you know, maybe the competition or the the experience with with industry. You know that we don't have the experience out there that we used to. Uh, what what I do know is when I talk to my acquisition professionals, that they say they're going as fast as they can. Right? You know, as you go through the process, uh, you go through research and development, you go through the E and D process. Uh, you know, they're they're pushing as hard as they can, and. Uh, but, you know, this is, I mean, Sentinel is a major, major effort, right? You're, you're looking at uh, probably the largest uh, modernization program in, in decades. Uh, you know, we're going to be doing MILCON projects uh, across five or six different states. Uh, we're going to re, uh, refurb 450 launch facilities. I mean, it's just a huge undertaking, right? Uh, so I think it's important, you know, and, and the team is doing that, getting all the groundwork getting everything laid in place so that once they, they're ready for production, start doing things, they, they can move at pace. Uh, you know, the, I think the last timeline I heard is, I think uh, the Air Force is going to turn over the first launch facility to, you know, out in the field to north of Grumman in the, uh, I think in the 25, 26 timeframe, and they're going to start turning them. And, and once they start turning them, we're, we're going to, we're on tap to, to deploy one Sentinel per week for nine years. 
Oh, and, wow, and, yeah. and the enormity of that task, uh, you, you realize the complexity, right? And it's, it's, it's about concrete. It's about, you know, infrastructure. It's about, you know, the technical aspects of the missile. So they're just, they're, they're very complicated programs and, and there's no margin for error. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know how you can go faster, but you know, when I, when I talk to my, my counterparts in, in AQ and, you know, certainly John Newberry out the nuclear weapon center, I mean, they wake up every day and say, how can we go faster? Uh, and so I, that doesn't answer your question. <laughs> but, but, I, but I know the people that are working this program are going as fast as they can. Well, it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I, I want to ask you about the most difficult and challenging thing that's being modernized right now. And, of course, that's the NC3 system. And, and I guess my, my broad question that maybe you can uh, take a few seconds to think about while we're on break is, are we going to be able to successfully move from this very reliable but dated system to a modern digital system that is secure? Because I think that's probably one of the major questions many people have. And so you're, folks, you're listening to Nuclecast. We're talking to Mike Schultz. It's a great conversation. We'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're list, we're talking with Mike Schultz. Mike, before the break, I ask you NC3 modernization. So as you think about it, it's, it's one of the big issues that you have. Uh, where do you see this modernization process and program going? Is it, is it working out as you would hope? Or are you finding that we have the solutions that we need? I am, uh, you know, there, there's two aspects that uh, uh, make up a credible trend, right? That's that's the platforms uh, <clears throat> that uh, have the capability and then its ability to command and control it, right? Uh, and, and what makes nuclear command and control different from conventional command and control is that uh, throughout the entire nuclear command and control process, you have to stay connected to the president, right? Because the president uh, is the sole authority that, you know, authorizes use. So, so I, I am, I am confident in the capability of our current systems. Uh, as you, as you point out, uh, you know, things that we've, we've, uh, taken for granted in the past, uh, you know, capabilities like access to space, uh, you know, you know, in an open press, you, you know, you know, the concerns about, um, you know, what, what potentially adversaries might, you know, try and do to our space assets and, and the impact that would have in our C2, not just from a nuclear standpoint, but from a conventional standpoint. So, you know, again, um, you know, our, our job is to uh, produce the capability. So for, for NC2, uh, you know, really the, the requirements are determined by, you know, kind of STRATCOM commander, uh, OSDANS, and, and we're working very closely with them 
uh, on on what we should be doing in the future, right? We're we're ensuring that what we have today is is fully operational, survivable, does the things uh, that we needed to do to stay uh, connected to the president and provi- provide the president options in in a in an extreme circumstance, extreme crisis situation. Um, you know, so we have some great great Americans like Dr. Todd Shriver, who is an A10 alumni working in ANS, you know, he's working very closely with uh, Mr. Chad Stevenson out at the NC3 uh, Enterprise Center there at, uh, at Stratcom, uh, trying to identify, hey, what's, what, what does the future look like from a, from a space, air, uh, and terrestrial standpoint, right? And to your point, how, how do we design an architecture that maybe takes some advantages of different uh, concepts? And I think part of that conversation uh, needs to kind of drive to how do you how do you define survivability? Uh, you know, we've to date defined su- survivability, um, you know, through what we call the thin line, right? Making sure that we had this this connection that stayed connected to the president all the way through the force. Uh, can you look at how you approach survivability differently? Like, does resiliency and redundancy uh, bring a survivability of its own, right? That, you know, maybe instead of having one hard system, I have multiple systems. And if one goes down, another one can, can, can fit in. So, so those conversations are taking place certainly with, uh, ANS and, and Stratcom, and we're a part of those and, and ensuring as any architecture that, uh, that they, uh, develop going forward that, you know, we're completely, NG with where they're going and, and making sure that, you know, as we, as, as we build our roadmap, that it's tied in and consistent with uh, where they're going uh, from a combat command perspective. Now, as we look into the future beyond uh, Sentinel and, and B-21, is there any discussion about, you know, I've, I've often wondered if we were to, to take our, nuclear arsenal and we were to sort of have a zero baseline where we, we assume nothing and we were to build from scratch. What, what, what would that, what would that arsenal look like from, from that perspective instead of, well, we got to modernize what we have, but we started completely from scratch. Is there any sort of thought or, you know, have you, do you guys look at that or is there primarily a focus on modernizing the triad as it exists and then is there any sort of thought in terms of you know as we move 10 20 30 40 years into the future is there actual re- a requirement for you know i don't know pershing pershing 3 or glickum 2 or something that's sort of outside of the system that we have now is is that something that gets discussed, or, or are we pretty well set within the limits of of the the arsenal we have? Well, I'll go back to the you know nuclear posture review, right? So nuclear posture reviews are conducted by administrations, um, and you know I, I serve in the executive branch, uh, you know as a senior executive here on the air staff, right? And uh, you know, and so as a service, you know, my, my, my job is to execute the, the objectives and the direction from a nuclear posture review. Uh, the conversations that you talk about there are conversations that, that take place, you know, as a part of the nuclear posture review. Uh, but as you know, uh, you know, each, each administration has different objectives, right. And different approaches to, um, 
to the role of nuclear weapons and, 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 you know, what capabilities we need. Right. So, um, you, you know, certainly from my perspective, uh, you know, I can have a personal opinion, but my, at the end of the day, what I come in and do and work has to, has to be, uh, consistent and, uh, achieve or execute the objectives of the nuclear policy review. So I, I think it, you know, to be, you know, to be, you know, to have a conversation. I think there are people that have concerns. Uh, you know, certainly I don't think anybody questions the, the credibility of our strategic deterrent, right? Uh, and, and, and our strategic deterrent doesn't just, you know, provide guarantees to our nation. We, unlike any other country, we provide those guarantees to other nations like, you know, Japan, South Korea, you know, we have our nuclear umbrella. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we kind of have what we have, right? And, uh, you know, so if you went to an arms control perspective, people in the arms control community would say, hey, look, you know, that's great that we're talking about all these strategic weapons, but, you know, what about the Russians' non-strategic weapons, right? And, and how do we capture some of those in an arms control uh, discussion? Because, you know, potentially from an escalation standpoint, you would say, hey, they might have an advantage, right? They have all these, you know, low yield, potentially battlefield weapons, uh, and, you know, options that, you know, we would be able to get to the president are kind of limited. Right. Uh, so I, I do know that those conversations have taken place. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, they, they get rolled into the nuclear policy review, they get kicked out and you go, okay, uh, here, here's what we're going to do. I think the other challenge too, though, you know, just, just like from, uh, you know, a service perspective, you know, where, you know, we've delayed modernization, for so long, you know, NSA and the Department of Energy have the similar challenges, right? Absolutely. You know, for decades, uh, we were doing nothing but sustainment and surveillance, and and now we're creating a demand signal on that on that system that you know we need to replace the warheads, you know, update the warheads because they're old, just like our weapon systems, and and the infrastructure right now for for NSA to do that is, is a little bit limited. Right. And, and, you know, they're looking to build new infrastructure to build pits and, and support some of our production requirements. So I would say, even if you wanted to go gangbusters right now <laughs> from an enterprise perspective, our ability to do that is a little bit limited right now. Over. Now, as we come to the end of the show, uh, is there anything that you think is, as you've sort of pondered our discussion thus far, for the for those Americans who might be listening and you know they maybe they don't have a career in the nuclear enterprise or they've worked in other aspects or parts of the enterprise but don't really know the air staff A10 what do you think would be important for them to know and understand about A10 and the mission you perform Yeah I don't you know so I would open it up a little bit more and say what, what they need to understand is the importance of the nuclear mission writ large for our nation. Uh, you know, nobody questioned the need for our nuclear capability during the cold war. Right. Uh, they, they knew why we had bombers on alert. They knew why we had uh, missile layers that went out the missile fields. Um, uh, so there was a, a clear and obvious threat. Uh, you know, when, when the cold war ended, uh, we had the peace dividend, Russia were our friends. Uh, there, there, there was a fleeting window of, hey, you know, I, I could envision a, a world without nuclear weapons. Um, but if you go back to the 20 NMP, 2010 NPR, 
and you look at the 2018 NPR, and, and you look in, in, in a period of eight years, how drastically the strategic environment changed, how, how Russia and China view the importance of nuclear weapons for their security, how, how Putin during the lead up to Ukraine and even during the Ukraine crisis, you know, you know, you know, used his nuclear rhetoric to try and intimidate uh, the U.S. and the West. Imagine if we didn't have a nuclear deterrent to backstop our actions, would, would our behavior have been different, right? So, you know, certainly I would like to see a world without nuclear weapons. That's not the trend we're going in. Uh, you know, China's building up very quickly, as you talked about, uh, North Korea, Russia. Uh, so it, in, until we get to a place where everybody's going to give up their nuclear weapons is understanding the importance that that nuclear capability brings to our nation is from, from a deterrent and, and protecting not only the United States, but providing assurance guarantees to our allies. Uh, I, I think after the Cold War till about probably, you know, 2018, we, we took our eye off the ball and didn't acknowledge the importance of the mission. I think the, the strategic environment is, is really allowed us to recage our gyros of the, the kind of world that we, we live in and, and the importance of this mission to, to backstop our conventional capabilities and to, uh, you know, basically provide a credible deterrent against uh, Russia and China from a nuclear standpoint. Over. All right. Well, we are out of time. Mike Schultz, Acting Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Deterrence and Nuclear Integration. Thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. Thank you, Adam. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Well, great talk with Mike Schultz. He's uh, one of those folks who knows the Air Force A-10 and knows the Air Force nuclear mission, and he knows it well. He's been doing it for a very long time, so it was it was a great chance to get to talk to him. Of course, I think I butchered his title at the very beginning. He is the acting deputy chief of staff. I think I called him the acting assistant. So sorry about that, Mike. Um, But he's certainly a wealth of knowledge. It was great to talk with him and great to get a sense of how all those pieces and parts fit together in the Air Force and DOD nuclear enterprise and just to get a sense of sort of what he's thinking about and what's going on up at the A-10 and, and how that system integrates uh, with the larger nuclear mission. So it was, it was a great conversation. Hopefully you enjoyed it. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 